Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Terry Kowaja. He's the CEO of Luma Partners, which is a media and technology investment bank. Terry has advised on over $300 billion in transactions, including some of the biggest deals in media, tech, and advertising. Terry, welcome to World of DAS. Great to be with you, Aaron. Excited to have a conversation with you. Now, economic uncertainty could be both a blessing and a curse when it comes to M&A. On the one hand, acquirers have uncertainty, maybe they're less willing to buy. On the other hand, targets are much more willing to sell for reasonable prices. How do you think that trade happens and how do you think that stacks up in 2023? I would say, generally speaking, that uncertainty is the enemy of deal-making. Buyers are reluctant to find the trigger finger if they don't have a good handle on what they anticipate the future to be. And we have lots of uncertainty from the economy to interest rates, supply chain, the war in Iraq, the list goes on and on. I think we're at peak uncertainty right now, Taiwan. And also market change, I would describe as having a lag factor, which is to say buyers tend to adjust value and expectations almost immediately. They just look at the public markets and see where things have traded off. Whereas sellers need a few quarters for the new reality to set in. The five stages of denial, anger, bargaining, all that kind of stuff. And sellers are human. They're like, well, I wouldn't sell now. And then maybe a few quarters later, when they realize this is the new reality or wherever we settle out, you'll see deal making happen again. It's why we've seen a slowdown. So the data clearly shows we've seen a slowdown in the last couple of quarters. Yet human patterns match what's happened in the past, which is when you get such a substantial movement so fast, it takes sellers a few quarters to realize if this is the new reality, then that's simply what they have to deal with. The other thing is, step back a second, maybe with a broader lens on it, think about what drives M&A, and it's largely change. M&A is a strategy choice, whether it's organic growth or build versus buy. You can also partner, but that tends to be temporary. And when change accelerates, like technology change, regulatory change, or market change, like we've all had, recently, then companies tend to favor M&A. It sort of gets them to the market faster. And it was all that change in the marketing technology sector in the last few years that drove deal activity, programmatic adoption, data deprecation, privacy regulation, shift to streaming, e-commerce acceleration. All those factors are change agents that we believe will continue. So once we get past this market reset, we expect activity to pick up again. One of the good things about ad tech in general is that the entire market changes every couple of years, how you go about things, the whole technology stack changes. It's both good and bad because it leaves a lot of players holding a bag, especially if you have more calcified technology, but it also means there's a lot of new players. There's a lot of new entrants that could come in. And I imagine that level of change in such a big industry, I don't think that's happening as much in oil and gas or something. All the change in such a big industry can drive a lot of M&A. A hundred percent. I put the time frame more like six months. Everything changes in that tech in six months. And it's one of the reasons that attracted me to this sector in the first instance, which is if you have a large, growing, fragmented, complex, and dynamic space, then that's a perfect opportunity for strategic advice. Over the last few years, some of the acquirers have been these private equity firms. And they've gotten more and more active and writing bigger and bigger checks. 
Do you think that is going to continue or do you think they will, just given all the other market uncertainty, that they will be less active in the next few years? Yeah, you're right to observe that private equity's presence in the sector is relatively new, but you're seeing it in big numbers in the last five years. And for the last two years, private equity has actually been the largest buyer group in the sector. They actually lead it at this point. And I attribute that to just the gestation of the maturity of the industry. So if you look at the sector now, there are enough private equity appropriate targets, that is to say, scale and profitability that has attracted private equity. Going forward, this is like a phenomenal scenario for private equity. Interest rates are more expensive than they were last year, but still historically low and valuations are way off. So if you're a sector-focused private equity firm with fresh capital to put to work and an investment thesis to pursue, now you got like a 50% off sale. Whereas like the classic strategic buyer might be a little bit more hesitant, the financial oriented buyer, like the private equity firm, potentially could be more aggressive. More aggressive, more agile. Yet I want to make a distinction here. This isn't your grandfather's private equity. The private equity firms focused on this sector tend to act quasi-strategic in the sense that they understand it deeply, they put some things together, and they're playing more for multiple expansion necessarily than cost-cutting and net income to just run the bottom line up. Potentially also in an uncertain environment, you could see a scenario where it could make sense to consolidate a bit, whether it's quote-unquote the bad word, the roll-up, or other ways of building a more diverse set of products, having a little bit more heft with the regulators, and the big regulators are Google and Apple. Those are the ultimate regulators that are out there. There's like the lesser regulators, which are like the EU in the US, but being able to have a little bit more heft with the Google and Apples of the world. Do you see any of these things being able to drive people who want to get quote unquote bigger? Absolutely. In fact, rarely do you have an industry sector the size of this one, depends on how you want to cut it, but it's well over a trillion dollars globally in marketing. And that's an enormous TAM. Yes, it is dominated by these big tech platforms, but even the non-walled garden is still an enormous market and growing, I might add, which is why it's attracted so much venture capital, so many companies. I mean, the whole premise of creating a Lumascape 15 years ago when I did was to get a handle on the fragmented ecosystem and understand how all the players worked. I have long advocated that this industry, like every other industry, ought reasonably mature, rationalize, and consolidate such that we end up with fewer companies in the middle with higher volumes and at lower take rates. In other words, kind of like everything else. Look at ERP software. There were over 200 competitive ERP companies. Now there's five of any consequence. Many industries go through that kind of wave. This one hasn't really matured. And is that just because the change is happening too fast, as you mentioned, to bring that maturity in? I would attribute the lack of end-state consolidation as a function of, yes, it's the dynamics that you referenced, but also the fact that the TAM keeps growing. Digital ad spend has grown over 20% for 25 years. Name me one other industry that has that persistent a growth rate. I don't think there is one. The other new thing that used to be new a while ago, but now is new again, is just the number of public ad tech companies. I think there's about twice as number today than there were just a couple of years ago. 
how are these companies faring and how do you think that's going to play out? Is that going to continue to be a trend or you think we're kind of at peak number of public ad tech companies? We did see a rush to IPO last year. The number of public companies in the ad tech and martech space doubled. And I think that was a function of backlog. I mean, so for many years, the IPO markets were closed and ad tech and martech were out of favor. So there was no opportunity for scaling companies to access public markets. So when last year happened, and it was tail of 2020 into 2021, we saw this rush to file. Now, that might give one caution in terms of are the right companies going public, but we would note that we track these in our Luma indices, Luma A and Luma M that track the ad tech and martech sectors. And the average net revenue growth of public companies in 2022 is 21%. And the average EBITDA margin is 25%, making that, if you think about the rule of 40, these companies are well over the rule of 40. So these are actually pretty good companies. And I would attribute that as a function of that growing TAM that we referenced earlier. These are pretty healthy companies. It's not a scenario where you're about to see crash and burn all over the place if we see a pullback in ad spend. And often they're still very founder run, or even when they're not founder run, they kind of brought in a quasi founder often to run them. And so it's a little bit of a different than the classic public company that's out there. There's plenty of SPACs that still have some dry powder, but maybe didn't find their targets. But of course, SPACs are a little bit out of fashion. How do you think that plays out? Do you think that's just over in today's market? Our thought at the time, because we were even considering, should we do a SPAC at Luma? We came to the conclusion that SPACs are a bull market vehicle. Just based on their structure, the way a trust shareholder has the opportunity to redeem at the despacking and keep their warrant and get their cash back with interest meant that if the market wasn't going up, then almost all of them would redeem. Because even if they loved the issuer, they could simply redeem, get their warrant, and then buy the stock in the open market as it turns out 50 or some cases 70% off. We note that there's currently almost 600 SPACs with over $150 billion of dry powder. And when you lever that up, that's somewhere between three quarters of a trillion and a trillion dollars worth of purchasing power. I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that there's not that much in qualified targets to pursue. So there's going to be a whole bunch of crash and burn in the SPAC sector. And if you map when the SPACs are maturing, the midnight clock is Q1 of 2023. So look out. You mentioned your ad tech and MarTech indices. The Luma indices are both down pretty significantly as the whole market is over 2022. If you had to think about the percentages, is this mostly just due to the market environment? Is this tracking the S&P 500? Or is there something else that's sector specific? Like there's cookies, there's Apple, there's regulations, there's other things that maybe people are worried about. If you look at the data, the NASDAQ is down about 21% year to date, and NASDAQ obviously skews towards tech. Call that a proxy for tech in general. Yet ad tech is down almost half off, 49%. So you could reasonably attribute the difference or rough justice. Half of it is macro. Half of it has to do with specific issues that are unique to ad tech that you made reference to. And I think probably the greatest one right now is the uncertainty with respect to audience-based targeting. So the ad industry about 12 years ago veered from placing ads on the basis of context, what the content was that you were viewing, and it switched to 
because it was the first opportunity they actually had to have addressable information around who was seeing the ad to target that user instead. And of course, there are certain tech platforms, there are certain signals, there's cookies, there's maids, there's a variety of signals that enable intermediaries and marketers to be able to target individuals on an audience basis. And that is changing. Privacy regulation is restricting what can be utilized, what can be known about people, in particular on a third-party basis. And perhaps greater is Apple and Google are deprecating signals themselves. Now, it's kind of interesting. When Apple came out in 2021, and they announced their AppTech Tracking Transparency Initiative, where they were basically going to cut off this signal of the user identity, even on an anonymous basis or an aggregated basis, that was pretty crystal clear. And that led to a flood of M&A activity. Contrast that with Google, where they have now twice delayed cookie deprecation approach, which is still very unclear. The whole sandbox initiative is amorphous. We're not really sure what the substitute is to a cookie. I go back to uncertainty is the enemy of dealmaking, and that creates uncertainty. That's why I don't think we've seen a lot of identity-based M&A in the last little while. And just that one Apple change, that had reverberations going all the way through. Like It really hurt the Facebook and Snap and other companies that you wouldn't necessarily have thrown in the ad tech bucket if you were just the average investor, but it really hurt those companies going forward as well. And the principals, the marketers, I mean, the direct-to-consumer marketers, it was such an explosion of these new brands. And yes, their designs were probably a little better and they had clever marketing. But at the end of the day, their success was driven on pure math, the math of customer acquisition. So what's called CAC, customer acquisition cost, relative to LTV, lifetime value. So that CAC to LTV ratio was critical in determining how they could onboard new customers in an economically feasible way. That entirely depended on being able to do audience-based targeted marketing. And especially Apple. Apple was a very important piece of it. Correct, because a lot of the conversion takes place in apps. With that deprecated cutback, oh my God, we hear, we can see Facebook and Snap's impact in terms of their stock price. What we don't see, what isn't as obvious is largely private companies. Actually, the few public ones are hurting, like Casper, Peloton. But the private ones, sadly, their businesses don't make sense. So many of these things are going out of business or they're massively cutting back. Some of them have laid off 80 plus percent of people and really got down to a skeleton, really just serving their core fans because the CACs are so high. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. When LTV to CAC flips on its head and is no longer economically viable, I mean, the good news is when it works, it works incredibly well, and you don't actually limit the amount of campaign spend. You would just keep drinking for the fire hose to accelerate growth. When the numbers get upside down, then no spending makes sense. So it becomes really challenging. And you also had a two-pronged issue because one, the Apple change, which really hurt their business. They were also riding this COVID bump where just the demand was going up. So your CACs were lower just by default because everyone was buying more stuff. Now that we've cut back, your CACs are just going to be much higher. Yeah. The same way 2021 was a perfect storm in a positive direction. Now we have the inverse. You're absolutely right. Live Rent, where I used to work, they're currently trading at five-year low. Despite still being a core glue to the industry, where do you think Live Rent went wrong? over the last few years? 
know and respect the folks at LiveRamp. And I think for companies like them, and I would put Critio in that category as well, there is a perception in the market that they're particularly exposed to cookie deprecation. I mean, if you look at where Critio is trading, we sold them a company called Hook Logic that got them into the commerce media space. And they have decided to completely pivot to commerce media, which I think is a very smart strategy shift on their part. But if you look at the numbers, they're trading purely on the value of that business and their massive retargeting business that utilizes cookies is basically assumed to be worth zero. It's bizarre. Which is still making a significant profit, I presume. Most certainly. If we think about a recession, like marketing budgets are typically the first to be slashed, performance advertising was somewhat resilient, I think, during the 2008 recession. But of course, the digital advertising landscape was different. If we go into a recession, how do you think that plays into just the general marketing industry? Let's clarify one thing. It's August 3rd. And the other day, the Fed report came out saying that we have had two quarters of declining GDP growth. So we are in a recession. (laughs) Now, mild, we'll see how severe it gets. I don't care about the severity of any recession. I just don't want it to last long because, again, uncertainty. If we're heading into a recession, then I'm certain that ad spend will suffer. It almost always does. You're right to point out that in the last turndown in 2008, 2009, digital was really just a niche performance channel rather than now it's the largest media channel encompassing a range of marketer objectives from both brand to performance. You know, if we go back and look at the last downturn, Spending in every media channel was cut except for search. Search actually went up because it had highly attributable, provable ROI. This one, I think, will be more of a balance. I don't think we'll totally escape the downturn, as was largely the case in 2008, because now digital advertising is the largest sector. So if the whole spending on advertising goes down, then the largest channel will likely suffer. Maybe not as much because it's a mixture of both brand and performance, but I would expect there to be some impact, yeah. Sometimes recessions cause people to move into new technologies that are a little bit more unproven, but are much more cost effective. And when things are good, they may have not wanted to go there. Like I remember in 2001, all these companies basically jettisoned their sun machines and went to Linux. And then in 2008, as you mentioned, a lot of companies really found religion on digital advertising because it was cheaper. And they may have just like been drinking out of the old school Kool-Aid beforehand. And then was much more aggressively moved into it. Is there some analogy you think that could happen now where there's these particular types of technologies that maybe were a bit unproven or a little bit riskier, but are probably more cost-effective and we'll see more dollars flow into those? Most definitely. As we previously said, this is an agile industry that is always on the go, on the change, on the innovation curve of trying to figure out what works or what works better. Some basic premises. Advertising is not going away. I would even go further and say specifically targeted advertising is not going away. So there will be workarounds. The privacy folks are concerned with unconsented utilization of someone's identity for purposes of targeting. I could quibble with that. I've got a whole thesis on how the whole privacy thing was poorly handled by the industry. And the weird thing about privacy is the folks that are pursuing the restrictions are doing so as a proxy for consumers, saying consumers are upset. It's not clear consumers are upset, actually. When you look at habits, whether it's the opt-ins on publishers from the GDPR sort of restrictions, it looks like most people, and in particular young people, are like, 
willing to participate in these trade-off, if you will, the value exchange between some form of anonymous identity about who they are, rough demographics or interest in return for a value proposition, something free. When privacy things are on the ballot, like in California, they do tend to pass. If you ask consumers broadly, do you want privacy? I assume they're going to say yes. And I think that's a function of conflating all the issues. It's like immigration. There's people flooding over the Mexican border, and then there's H-1B engineering graduate school folks. Both of those are under the guise of immigration. Like privacy, if someone loses your file, someone leaks your file of PII data and people know all about you, that's privacy. And guess what? An anonymous identifier that gives marketers a rough idea of what you might be interested in is also privacy. So a lot of it depends on how it's worded and so forth. But yes, getting back to your original question, I think there's going to be opportunities in contextual as that gets revamped. First party matching, you've seen clean rooms come to mind as an innovative technology to both continue the audience-based targeting and yet preserve that data to make sure it doesn't get loose in the internet. And let's not forget creative. I'm of the view that this industry spends way too much time optimizing efficiency when they should spend more time on efficacy. And this is where I think creative tech can play a big role in that. And certainly, classically with Google Ads, there's the efficiency of what keyword should I target, but the creative, essentially, what should I put in the ad is just as important. And then, of course, the creative on the landing page, once you go, is really important too. So you have these three pieces. There's the efficiency side, but there's also the creative side in that one. Everyone in the industry understands that. And of course, like TV, people have been understanding creative for a really long time. There are three components of an ad. There's the media where the ad is going to show up, the data, the audience, who's going to see it, and then the creative. We have seen a flood of innovation and deal-making in the first two, in media and data. It's basically crickets. Maybe a little bit of A-B testing, but that's about it. Yeah, a little bit of that stuff. And those are all small ball deals. But I think there's a great unlock here by leveraging technology on the creative side. Again, to focus on efficacy as opposed to efficiency. I think of it as an iceberg. The part you see above the water is efficiency. Because everyone can see that and everyone can measure that, marginal incremental improvements on that is what everyone across the Lumascapes seems to be focused on. Whereas nine-tenths of that iceberg is underwater. That's creative. That's efficacy down there. There's these major players, Apple, Google, maybe to a lesser extent, Facebook that are out there. Of course, there's a lot of antitrust calls and that maybe throw Amazon as well. Do you think there's going to be any meaningful action? And in either case, do you think that will affect the marketing landscape? Let me start by saying I certainly hope so. I see far greater harm to consumers in the antitrust imbalance than privacy. And yet all the attention and legislative action historically has been focused on the latter. That has changed. I presume because the people driving the agenda would be these bigger companies, and it's much better for them to focus it on the privacy than to focus it on antitrust. A hundred percent. Why is Google delaying cookie deprecation? Well, because I think they're more worried about antitrust than they are about privacy. Privacy and antitrust are a double-edged sword. If you move in one direction to enhance privacy, you are exacerbating the antitrust problem. And that imbalance, I think, in the long run hurts consumers pretty severely. So I certainly hope we do see movement. 
leadership out of the EU, for sure. Belgium, the UK, and the EU in general seem to be very focused on antitrust. They're more toothless compared to, say, Congress here. And there's lots of reasons to be skeptical that Congress will actually get anything effective passed, but I certainly hope so. And you don't have to actually break these companies up, but by looking into it a little bit more, they might be a little bit more likely to let competition happen, I would presume. If you think of like past antitrust things, maybe didn't break the companies up, but maybe help that company be a little bit more open to competition. Scrutiny alone can have a positive impact. So we'll see. You've spoken a lot at length about how the challenges to the industry around ID deprecation haven't really been addressed. Where do you see that going? Again, if we're going to perpetuate some form of targeted advertising, that will be necessary. I hope this is not like a Thelma and Louise moment for ad tech. We've been there many times before. I mean, since I've been focused on the sector for 17 years, people have been calling for the death of ad tech and yet it continues to survive and thrive despite these seems like annual existential threats. So at a certain point, you tend to have more faith in the resiliency of the sector than the naysayers. That's just based on pattern recognition. But I will say that it's not clear to me that we have in hand a replacement for the cookie for identity. The notion of UID 2.0 or using one's email, I don't know. I hear that and say, wait, if privacy folks are up in arms about an anonymous 10-digit identifier, am I more upset about an associated amount of proclivities and interests associated with 192.27.534.28 or tikawaja at lumapartners.com? The latter feels to me far more privacy invasive. And when you think of like being an investor, I think of my own investing experience in ad tech, it's been very positive. The companies broadly that I've invested in have done super well. And I think generally ad tech, if you're an investor, let's say an angel investor in some of these companies, you've done incredibly well. When I start to look at my own portfolio, I start thinking, okay, in ad tech, there's still companies that are a bit more on the ad side and there's companies who are a bit more on the tech side. And while both of them together have done well, the companies I invested in that were more on the tech side have done just incredibly well. And the companies on the ad side have done okay. How do you think of the market when you think about like the broader ad tech market? We definitely look at companies and try to discern what their underlying business models are and how much inherent operating leverage is in those business models. There is a tendency that media has lower operating leverage than technology per se. It's almost like, you know, you got media low and then data and then software. So it tends to be stratified. And historically, if you look at valuation multiples, those reflect those relative operating leverage levels. You've done well because you're an insider. You understand how it works. We have to pick our clients wisely as well. And we've done a very good job because we understand what's going on. It's not for the faint of heart. Because of the fragmentation, a lot of those companies go to zero, but probably not the ones that well-informed investors are putting money into. When you think of all of these amazing entrepreneurs, you mentioned Hook Logic, Jonathan Updike, who I think is just an incredibly talented person. If you just go through all these different ad tech M&A, Brian O'Kelly, Ari Paparo, and obviously even the public companies, Jeff Green, you just have these incredibly talented people. Like, Why have all these people just shown up in ad tech? Is it just because this is where the money is? It doesn't seem like necessarily a place that you would expect to attract all these talented folks. 
Elon Musk, one of the greatest entrepreneurs alive, even including the last four months, he started in fintech and optimizing something on the enterprise side. Again, I go back to there are very few industries with the kind of scale of the TAM and the dynamics such that if you have confidence that you can build a product that is a better mousetrap, then you have opportunities to make a difference and create a lot of value. And you're absolutely right. There are some phenomenal entrepreneurs in this industry. It's probably why I'm sticking around is because it's just fascinating to work with these brilliant, brilliant minds. Yeah, it's fun. These people are super fun. Now, a couple of personal questions. You're a very specialized professional, right? You've been a banker for a super long time. We had David Epstein on, who was a guest recently at World of Das, and he talked about why generalists will win over specialists in today's world. What's your take on this? I have a bit of a different take than just the generalist versus specialist. I'm a big believer in two concepts, optionality and comparative advantage. In fact, I think most people undervalue optionality in life. The approach I espouse is to develop what I call transferable skill sets early in one's career. Specializing helps you develop comparative advantage that can really accelerate your career. In my case, I develop transferable skill sets like valuation and negotiation. But as it so happens, I stayed as a strategic advisory intermediary role my whole career because I love it and I get variety. But I still had those transferable skill sets should I choose to do something else. So it's a combination of some form of specialization while maintaining optionality. And I think even at my firm, Luma, that our comparative advantage due to specialization in a complex and dynamic sector has had massive benefits. And there is zero chance I would have gotten this far as a generalist M&A advisor. You mentioned something I thought was interesting that you think optionality is undervalued. At least from my standpoint, I would say the opposite. I'd say at least for smart people, most smart people way overvalue optionality and they're always doing things to like try to figure out ways to increase their options rather than more narrowing down on things. So like they go to law school, not because they love the law, but because, well, it gives me some optionality. They go to McKinsey. Well, McKinsey will give me some optionality. It looks good in my resume. And they keep stacking things on their resume that quote unquote look good, but don't necessarily drive them anywhere. And even if you think of the ultimate thing, like they stay single much longer as well, which is like the ultimate optionality as well. You're raising your hand. Is that you too? Or Yeah, I got married at 41 for the first time. That's the other side of the coin. Maybe both are right in the sense that I had a politician, businessman, lawyer who addressed a class in my business school. And someone asked the question about, of your three careers, which one would you recommend? And he said, do it all. Do everything. Have a career, then have another career, then have another career. Diversity is the spice of life. So maybe that's where I got my notions of optionality. Now, you have this quote that I love. You said, there's more money to be made in ideas than in billable hours. Can you unpack that a bit? That's really about operating leverage, a concept that I admit I am obsessed about. I'm an optimizer, an eternal optimizer, and maybe see optionality above. And I apply it to almost every aspect of my life. And by the way, both positive and negative. I got to be honest, I over-optimize things. Are you one of those people like Taylor? Frederick Taylor, and he was like the super optimizer 100 years ago. He was the guy who actually went to the factories to try to optimize it. But he was like such an optimizer that he tried to shave with two razors at the same time. 
and then realized it was just taking way more time because he was bleeding all over the place afterwards. It's like New York, classic example. When I get on a subway, I think about where the exit is in the stop that I'm going to get off, and I migrate to the car that I think minimizes my steps on the other side because movement on the starting platform before the train arrives is not on the critical path, whereas movement after the train arrives at its destination is on the critical path. You're like, I got to get in a car five. I know that's going to be the most optimal place. I just automatically do that. It drives my wife crazy. She goes, you're nuts. Like, what is going on in your head? I can't control it. There's no off switch. So your question about billable hours is all about operating leverage. And yes, I knowingly launched Luma, which is a strategic advisory firm, which arguably has low operating leverage. But the way we've done our go-to-market, we have higher operating leverage. We have different numbers. If I showed you our financials, you would not guess that it was an advisory firm. Looks more like a software firm. One thing you're well known for is bringing humor into your Luma presentations, into your YouTube, into your Twitter feeds. Is it just life's too short not to have fun? I have been an investment banker for a long time, but I've been a comedian for longer. So I would suggest it's in my nature. I'm going to do that because I'm doing that for me, not for anyone else. And yet, as it turns out, it's got some benefits. People can smell authenticity. So if I'm all straight laced, I probably wouldn't feel like me. And when I'm being me and joking around, you come across as more authentic. It's a big differentiator. I mean, bankers tend to be pretty dry humans. Bankers and corporate lawyers, you don't expect a lot of humor coming from either of those. Maybe accountants too. We take our day job seriously. We just don't take ourselves too seriously. And then maybe a third one is I sort of have been accused of having no filter. And I think in the long run, that's a good thing. But, you know, as an intermediary, it can get you in trouble. And I think that if you can wrap some harsh news with a comedic wrapper, it's like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down kind of thing. So in my presentations, when I'm talking about some cataclysmic thing, often it's done in a humorous way so that the audience reaction is, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> all right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? In particular here in the United States of America, because I came from Canada, the premise that a lot of folks that adopt the capitalist way of life aspire to is get rich as fast as possible. Success, speed is the answer, like do it sooner or faster. And my motto is get rich slowly. Which is the Warren Buffett motto as well. What happens when you get there too fast? Maybe it's my lack of faith in my own ability to be responsible or something. But I just think you get rich slowly. If you're doing what you enjoy doing, then you have meaning and purpose along the journey and you'll get there. And again, if you're exercising, diet, and you've got some luck on the gene pool, then you're probably going to live a lot longer than you anticipated. So get rich slowly, enjoy the journey. They always say enjoy the journey, but how does that manifest itself? Don't worry about the end outcome. So long as you're on a track to get there eventually, then that's cool. Yeah, it's funny. I talked to a lot of people who are, let's say, around 30 years old, and a lot of smart, ambitious people, they're like, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not a super multimillionaire. I'm not running this huge company yet or something like that. It does feel like it waits on a lot of people. Like There's some sort of expectation, either that they had in their head or society's expectation of them because they went to Harvard or something like that, that they should be doing something much bigger. 
And I think a lot of it is self-imposed. I think we think that society is thinking that. The reality is no one is thinking about you. As the famous quote from Don Draper, I hate to break this to you, but the universe is indifferent. All right. Well, thank you, Terry Kowaja, for being with us on World of Das. I follow you, T. Kowaja, on Twitter. Is that the best place for our listeners to stay up to date on all your musings? I can be found on Twitter. If you're interested in comedy, you can check out my parodies on my YouTube channel. It's just search for my name. For industry content, we post a lot of materials on our website, lumapartners.com. Amazing. All right. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much for being guests on World of Das. Great to chat with you, Arn. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 